Parshat Vayera. I love this parsha. Um, this is an intense parsha. There is a lot going on in this parsha, and I decided that I'm Dafka not going to talk about the Akedah, even though it's an amazing topic, because we're going to get to that. I actually think I'm going to talk to you about that um, over uh, on Yom Hazikaron. Um, I actually remember this journey vividly. Okay? We would get onto a safari truck. It was just the most awesome feeling. It was a very mixed feeling. On the one hand, it was so great to get in a truck and not in your tank or jeep. Uh, but you had all your gear on you. And uh, the reason they called them safari trucks was they took this idea from, literally from safaris. They used to, um, when we were first, when they first went into Lebanon, they had to transport troops to forward positions. So they would put you in the back of a truck, right? Because there just weren't enough. It's hard to imagine this, but it, it didn't, you didn't realize how dangerous it was at the beginning because we had sort of crossed over into Lebanon through some very intense fighting um, in June of 1982. And by July, you know, we'd kind of established our positions, Beirut, uh, Beirut-Damascus Highway, heavy fighting around the airport in September. You know, sort of by that winter, we'd basically taken over southern Lebanon, all the way up past the Awali and Zarani rivers, really past Beirut. So you controlled the roads. There were army troops everywhere. There were 20,000 troops that went in um, in June, and there were thousands and thousands of troops. So you felt safe. But by the time sort of, I was sort of an officer in Lebanon, that reality had faded away to a different reality. Uh, Hezbollah had been born. Um, they had gotten very good at uh, you know, roadside detonations, sniper shootings, and the like. And it was scary. And there was a brief period, about two, two years, where the Israeli army was still transporting men in trucks. For the life of me, I don't understand why. Right? Today, nobody would go anywhere near Aza or Lebanon without an armored personnel carrier that's basically like a tank. But that's how it was. So you got on this truck. On the one hand, it was a great feeling because you were going home. You know, you'd been 17 days or three weeks or four weeks, you know, in nonstop missions. And now you were going to get four days at home, right? On the other hand, you were driving some 70, 80 miles through Lebanon or whatever it was. And you knew you were a sitting duck. And, you know, I remember the first time I was in one of these safari trucks. I, when, when they started this, they transported us in trucks. We just got in the back of a truck. And there were two benches in the back of the truck. And you would sit in the bench, like kind of looking in. And after a while, people started realizing that was pretty dumb to have all the soldiers facing in. So they took the benches out, put them in the middle, fold-down benches, and now you would sit with your back to the, you know, sort of a row here and the other guys, and now you'd sort of, that made sense, kind of created this false illusion that you were safer. But, you know, you're sitting there with a, an M16 and some guy's detonating a bomb. It doesn't really make a difference. Like, there's not much you can do. And you were sitting duck. And, you know... It wasn't infrequent that safari trucks got hit, guys got hit. There was a whole, every time you got onto one of these trucks, you would do an exercise, right? Every time we got back to Kirchman on Sunday morning before we went into Lebanon, and every time on a you know, Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning before we got out, they would get you on the truck, they would drive 500 meters, someone would scream, Nitkaltem, like you've been attacked. The, 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 the truck would drive, hit the gas, and drive 50 yards, because it's actually a mistake to think you hit the brakes and being fired at. You want to distance yourself away from where you're being fired at. You drive for 50 yards, then hit the brakes, then everybody jumps out. 
that, you know, sort of the row of soldiers on the side, they're being fired, turns around and starts firing. The other row jumps out, takes cover from behind, there's a whole Targil. So this kind of creates this intensity. On the other hand, you're in this truck, and, you know, you see the Shuf Mountains, you know, up to your right. And then you get to uh, Gam Karun, which was this uh, reservoir in Lebanon. And you pass below the Bufour, which was this fortress up on this hill. Unbelievable fortress, crusader fortress, that Golani took up a hill like this. And every time we rode underneath this, it just blew my mind that anybody could take that. And then you get to Marjaun, which is basically the last serious Lebanese village. And there was an Israeli army base there. And then you cross over the border into Kiyatswana. And this wave of relief just hits you like you're out. And I still have in my head, you know, every once in a while, somebody will pull open a vest or a Velcro, and it'll just take me back. Because that was the sound you heard. The truck would stop, and guys would get up, and they'd pull open their Velcro patches and take their Shach Patsimo off their, like, flak vests or whatever, and they'd jump off the truck, and you could walk in. There was this uh, crossroads that was, like, I don't know, a few hundred yards away. It was called Sumata Saftot, Grandmother's Junction. Because there were these old ladies that used to come. Uh, I thought they were old then. They're about my age now. But they were these saf. We used to call them the safta, the grandmas. And they had this rotation from Kachmana, and they would stand there because that was where all the troops would come in. And they used to make these incredible like baguette sandwiches, like omelets and whatever. And and they would just give them out to soldiers. And you hadn't eaten real food in a while. It was unbelievable. And and it wasn't. You just you felt home. There's something about now. Kiryat Shmona is not home for me. I don't know the city that well. There's a <clears throat> couple of Nachalim in the area now, I know, but... And I was still very far from home. Hours and hours from home. But you were home. Right? There's something about the place that you're in that, you're in that affects everything. I wonder if any of you felt that this week. You know, stuck in your rooms. Okay, a Jew is never stuck. Sent to your rooms by a Kodesh Baruch for two or three weeks. And then finally you get to come out and you come back to the base members. And you feel like you're coming home. This is like where you belong. You don't belong sitting learning Rambam in your bedroom. Right? Really, what's the difference? You're holding a Rambam. What's the difference if you're sitting there? You're sitting here. Right? It's not that much of a difference, but it's everything. And why do I tell you all this? Because there's an interesting halacha that comes in this week's parsha, And it is in the most unlikely place. Okay? We all know the story of Sodom. Shem comes to Avram, and he says to him, right, <clears throat> I want to see, you know, sort of, little destroy stuff. And Avram has this famous argument with the Kashbarah, right? He says, like, maybe there are 50 tzaddikim, maybe there are 40 tzaddikim. Hashem says, all right, if there are 50 tzaddikim, I'll spare the cities. Right, 10 for each of the five cities. There are five cities, Stam, Amara. Right? What if they're 40? What if they're 30? What if they're 20? What if they're 10? And then Hashem stops with 10. And Avram stops at 10. He goes back. Right? So that's an interesting discussion. Like, first of all, what is that debate? What is it that Avram is doing? What, what would we call that dialogue? Well, what is the negotiation with Hashem? He's davening. He's tefillahing. He's, he's right? It's a very strange tefillah experience. Like, Hashem says I'm going to destroy stone. So, if Hashem says I'm going to destroy stone, then stone's going to be destroyed. Well, what's Avram trying to argue with Hashem? 
Does anybody know where Avram is called a tzaddik? Anybody know? That is correct. Avram's not called a tzaddik. That's why you shown a bet. Avram's not called a tzaddik. Noach is called a tzaddik. You know, there's one opinion that's brought down by the Chedush Arim, who was the grandfather of the um, I was looking for it today. I couldn't find it. So if somebody finds it, you let me know. Pretty sure I saw it in the Chedush Arim. He says, Noach was called a tzaddik because the tzaddik accepts the will of Hashem. We like to compare Avram and Noach and give Noach a hard time. But Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the world, not so much as a peep out of Noach. Hashem says, I want you to build an ark. It's going to take you 120 years to build this ark. Not a peep. Okay, you want me to build the ark? I'll build the ark. Hashem says, I want you to take two of each animal, bring them into the ark. Can you imagine? He's got to go find two elephants and figure out a way to get them in an ark. He's got to find two lions. How do you find two lions? You know, like, well, what is that all about? Can you imagine what his neighbors are saying about him when he shows up with the hippos? They think he's out of his mind. He's whacked. Not a peep. If this is what Hashem wants, then this is what I'll do. Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the world. And Noah just says, I accept your will. He is the ultimate nach. He receives, he rests, he's at peace, he accepts that Hashem runs the world. There's something powerful about that. So why is Avram arguing with God? Okay. They finish this dialogue. By the way, there is a whole discussion here on the fact that the minimum that you need in order for a community to be viable is 10 righteous individuals. Right? There's something powerful that happens when nine individuals get one more guy. It's not just the 10th. It transforms the nature of the group to a community. And there's something mystical going on there. Again, not for now, but maybe eventually we'll get to talk about this this year. Minion is not a random number. Okay. But then there's an interesting pasuk. This is fascinating. Okay. Perak Yudtet, pasuk Chavzai. Right? Vayashkem Avram Baboker. Avram arises early. Now the word Vayashkem is a powerful word. It doesn't appear all that often. Where's the most famous place I find that? Right? Avram arises early, saddles up his donkey to take his son to the binding story, to the Akedah. And all the commentaries say, when you're in Avram, and you've been asked by Hashem to do something which seems to you to be painful and impossible, you don't just grudgingly get out of bed. You jump out of bed. You arise to your purpose in that day. So it's interesting that that word is used here. Right? He goes back to the same place where he stood opposite God. That's a powerful line. There is a certain type of tefillah of letting Hashem in. There's a certain type of tefillah where you're standing opposite Hashem. Hashem. You know, you're, you're, you're struggling with God and the Holocaust. That's not letting God in. That's, that's standing opposite. That's struggle. So he goes back to the same place and he looks out on Sodom and Amorah, on the valley. You could call it the valley of... Yeah, I would call it the valley of evil. He's looking down at Times Square, I don't know. Right? And all of the plains. And he sees, there's that Vayar again. And smoke is rising up from the land. It's on fire. Fire and brimstone. He's watching the destruction of Stam. That's a strange pasuk. 
Avram gets up early because he wants to watch the Stum show. You know? Hey, Sarah, babe, you want to come? We're going to go watch his fireworks today. Oh, yeah, he's wiping out the city. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> you know, when um, there was an article that was written, this is, uh, it was the second Lebanon war, but I could be wrong. But um, when Hamad Magen, when Hamad uh, Barzel, the, the Kipat Barzel, the, what do they call it in English? The Iron Dome. So they were firing missiles down on Tel Aviv and Ashdod and this whole area. And the Iron Dome was shooting missiles back up. So most of us, you know, when they told us to go into the shelters, we went to the shelters. But you know, they were teenagers, things like that, and they went outside, they wanted to see it. They wanted to take pictures. So somebody took a picture of a bunch of people taking pictures of the missiles firing at the missiles. You know what I'm talking about? You've probably seen pictures like this, right? And, and the mayor of the front at the time wrote an article, said, this is not a show. This is, this is, there's something educationally flawed in somebody going outside and saying, let's watch the show. People in Tel Aviv were terrified. People in Ashdod, in Ashkelon, in all of Gushdan were terrified. And you're going out there to check out the show? And what if one of the missiles missed? People could be killed. We should be taking pictures, we should be davening. So what is Avram Avinu doing? It's very strange. Even stranger is what the Gemara tells us in Brachos. The Gemara in Brachot, and Davav, um, you know what? It says like this. It says like this. Whoever sets a place. This is Whoever sets a place to Then the God of Avram will help him. And when such a person dies, and a person who had a makom kavua set place to daven dies, what, um, what, a, what an anav, let's call that a humble person, that doesn't mean that we know what it means, but even though some of us dis- discussed this today, what a chassid, this is one of the students of Avram. This pasuk, Avram getting up and going back to the place where he davened, where he argued with God, that is the source of our halacha to have a makam kavbo. This is very interesting. Okay? Now the Bavli says, what's the Makam Kavua? Rashi tells us they talk about this. It's a big lesson. That you should have a house, you should have a building, you should have a place where you die. The Yushalmi takes it a stage further and they say you should have a place in the shul. Right? You should have your place in the shul. Right? David Bentor should go back and sit right there every time he dives and dive in the same place. So I have two questions here. Anybody want to tell me what my two questions are? What do you think? Two questions. Yes, County. Uh, I'm guessing one of them is why okay, Abraham. Okay, why are you an unav? I wasn't going to think of that, but we'll talk about that too. Why are you an unav? Why are you such an incredible person? Because you davened in the same place. That's why you're a student of Avram? Not because you did chesed. Not because of Yarei yar, Shamayim. Not because you fight for God. No, because you davened Shonash in the same place. You said, really? This is such a big deal? Give me another question. Yeah? Jack? No, because he goes back to the same place where he was before. Well, you're close. If the, if the, I wasn't thinking of this question either, but it's a good question. If, if I'm learning the halacha that you should go back to the same place to daven, then you should learn it from an instance where a person goes back to the same place and davens. 
but he's just looking out at the valley. What would you have to say? He was dominant. How was that tefillah? Give me another question. Let's just sum up so far, right? Why is going to look a form of tefillah? Why do I learn this halacha from that? And why is such a person called an anav and a student of, of Avram just because he dives in the same place, yeah? Right, why is he looking at this? What, well, I'm going to ask this a little differently. I'm not sure if this is what you meant, but I hope it is. What does this have to do with the story of stump? Why am I looking, learning the halacha of makam kavua from this story of stump? You know? By the way, I want you to understand what it means that Avram Avinu is struggling with God destroying stump. This is not like, you know, a Rosh Yeshiva somewhere saying, you know, we should look out for the Jews of Tel Aviv, even if they party on Friday night. That's not what we're talking about here. This isn't just people who didn't keep Shabbos. They weren't even Jewish. This was the epitome of evil in its day. It's compared to the generation of the flood. This is, you know, I don't know, Rav Lichtenstein davening for Nazi Germany in 1945. This is, this is Rav Lichtenstein turning around and running back into Auschwitz because he sees that there's a, an American bomber coming, and he sees the two SS guards are about to get killed by the bomber. This is nuts. I mean, if you're Avram Avinu, why on earth would you want to save stone? You should, it, it's your mission in life to get rid of stone. And what does that have to do with dominating in the Makum Kabul? You understand? So I want to share with you an idea. Yeah, you want to say something? Okay, go ahead. You gotta speak up though. You're struggling with the idea that good people should be destroyed, right? Oh, you're saying how could he let the good innocent people die? Somebody prove to me that AB's incorrect, yeah? Prove it to me. Yeah? Because at this point they they had already spoken what does Avram ask for? He says, don't destroy Sdom if there are 40 or 50 righteous people there, right? So he's concerned with saving Sdom. What you're saying is, he doesn't want the tzaddikim to die. So we, then he should just ask, are there any tzaddikim there? You know why Avram doesn't ask that? Because why would God destroy the tzaddikim? But he's not asking to save the tzaddikim. We already know that there was one tzaddik saved. What was his name? He wasn't even such a tzaddik. Lot. So if Hashem saves Lot, and Avram knows Lot isn't such a tzaddik, because you know your family. So how did Avram even think there might be tzaddik in there? Right? It's very strange. This whole story is very strange, yeah? And speak up, because we got two layers of plastic. So Avram is struggling with something. Avram is struggling with something. You know, I've always felt that if you're an Avram Avinu, and Sdom, even Sdom, is being destroyed, you could stay in bed. You could just roll over and go back to sleep. Avram is setting the bar for what being a Jew is all about. I remember once, uh, I don't know, I, I was in Gush, but I don't remember which year it was. 
Um, but I was already back and done with the army. And there was a group of his Dernikim, guys from yeshiva in the army. Um, I actually don't think they were Gushnikim, but it didn't matter. And they um, got into an Hitaklut, a, uh, a firefight with uh, two terrorists. And they succeeded in killing the terrorists, and none of them were injured, which is not a small thing. And because they were his Dernikim with big kippot and tzitzis hanging out, so it kind of made the papers. And they took a picture. Somebody took a picture of them posing in front of the dead body of the terrorist. And this made the front page of the news. And I remember seeing that, uh, that, that newspaper. And I remember seeing the picture, and I was really bothered by it. And I only remember it because I remember talking about it with my wife. I was really bothered by it. Like to pose by a dead body, it's just a hysterical. But I thought, okay, I don't know. Something bothers me about that. It's like the guy who poses with his gun. Those things bother me for obvious reasons. I get to Yeshiva the next day. It was a Sunday morning, and Rav Lichtenstein at about quarter to one, right? We had morning Seder, you know, Shear, Seder. It was a different order. We had Shear in the morning, and then we would have Seder. And um, quarter to one, Rav Lichtenstein sort of gets up from his chair, takes the shtender, puts it up in front of the base medrash. Everybody sees Rav Lichtenstein standing there. That's a sign that he's about, he wants to talk to the yeshiva, and everybody kind of quietens down and settles in. We also know now lunch is not going to be on time because Rav Lichtenstein didn't give 10 minutes yichot. And he begins to talk about this photo. And I, I he, he, there's no other descriptive word. He railed against this. It blew his mind that boys with kipot on their heads could pose in front of a dead body. And I remember he quoted the Gemara. The Gemara says that the malachim, you know, want to sing. The Jewish people are singing, and the malachim want to sing. And Hashem says to the angels, right? Atem sharim shira v'masai tovim bayam. You, you're, you want to sing songs when human beings that I created are being drowned? It might be right to drown the Egyptians. It might be that they're evil. It might be the world needs them destroyed. But you should, you should rejoice in this? You should be happy with a smile that a human being created B'Tselem Elohim through circumstances became a terrorist and wanted to kill innocent people and you had to kill him and that you should revel in that? You should be nauseous from that. I've always felt that that was Avram. That Avram felt that if we're going to make a better world, it has to bother us, even if Sodom is being destroyed. You know? I remember when the World Trade Center, um, you guys, you guys, I think, weren't even born. That blows my mind. But I remember, I remember every detail about that day. And one of the things that, that was painful was that, you know, this was only seven years after Oslo, there were still people who thought we could make peace with the Arab Palestinians, whatever you know, names you want to use. They were dancing on the rooftops. Not all of them, but they were dancing on the rooftops. There were, they were people handing out candies in Aza because the World Trade Center had been destroyed and the Twin Towers fell down and 3,000 Americans of the Great Satan were murdered. And I remember thinking to myself, like, that is such an un-Jewish thing to do. I never saw Jews celebrating, you know, sort of Russians dying even during communist Russia, right? So that's one level. But the question is, what does that have to do with, with the halacha of makam kavua, of, of having a set place to daven? And why are you called mitam shel Aaron from the students of Aaron because you fulfill this mitzvah of a makam kavua? So it's interesting. There is a, a Mishnah in Brachos. 
Okay, it's in Perak Dalad, Mishnah Dalad. It says how set filato, right? What, what are we saying? You have to have a makom kavua. Now the word kavua, you're learning this year that we have to be sensitive to words. We have to define our terms. The word kavua is a very distinctive word. It could have just said you should have a makom. It says you should have a makom kavua. That's what we call it. It's a set place, right? What makes the place your place is that it's set, that it's there, that you're consistently there, that you go back to it, and it becomes permanent, right? So there's a Mishnah that says, how set filato keva, ain't filato, am I now? Ain't filato tachanunah. If you make your tefillah kavua, your prayer set, then your tefillah won't have tachanunah. It won't have chen. There'll be an inner beauty that's missing from it. So I don't understand. Your tefillah is not supposed to be keva, but the makam where you daven is supposed to be keva. What is that about? So I want to suggest an idea. Um, you know, it's interesting. And I owe a Rav Davidal thanks for this. A few years ago, he introduced me to um, a sefer called the Shari Ora. The Shari Ora was written by Rav Shach's son-in-law. It's a magnificent sefer. And he says an interesting thing, Shari Ora. He notes which character in Tanakh has an experience which is almost antithetical. It's almost the antithesis of what, what Avram is doing. Anybody know? Pardon? Bilam. Who said Bilam? Excellent. Bilam. Okay? Listen to what happens in Bilam. Remember, Bilam is this non Jewish prophet. It's a whole discussion. We'll get to it at the end of the year. And Balak sends emissaries. Somehow, Bilam has this capacity to bless, to curse. Interesting question what that's about. So Balak, the king of Moab, he has figured out that you're not going to beat the Jews on the battlefield. You've got to beat them on the spiritual field. So he wants Bilam to curse the Jewish people. Now, put aside for a moment, there are all sorts of discussions about to be shown him. If Hashem blesses us, what's the difference if somebody curses us? Is it because it would affect morale? One way of understanding it is Bilam would create a desecration of Hashem's name. <clears throat> but Bilam wants to curse Jewish people. So Bala comes to him and he says, Come with me. Right? Come with me. Um, and Bilam seems to go, but he says to Hashem, What should I do? What does Hashem say? Don't go with him. In order to curse them, you got to go somewhere. You have to leave your place. Now, why do you have to leave your place to curse? But it doesn't end there. Because the emissaries leave, right? Go back to your land. This is in Parshat Balak and Perak of Bet. Right? So they go and they come back to Balak. But Balak isn't happy. He thinks, we got to fix this. Why won't Bilam do what I want him to do? You know what it must be? He hasn't been offered enough money, wealth. So Balak says, I'm going to get more important people. And we'll offer him more money. And when they come to Bilam, Bilam says, No matter how much money he offers me, I can't, if he gives me more money, I can't, I can't transgress. So Bilam is thinking about money. You know, can you imagine if, you know, it's the end of the day, and, 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 and Rav Blau is leaving, 
and, 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 you know, I don't know, it's Friday afternoon, and you say to him, listen, you know, would you stay for an hour to have a chavrus with me? And Rav Blau says to you, well, you know what, even if you paid me double my salary, I don't think I'd stay for a chavrus. You'd be like, what? That's just a weird thing to say. Like, that would mean that he's thinking about how much that he's not earning money for a chavrus. So the fact that Bilam says this means that money's on his mind. Okay. But since you're offering, let me ask Hashem again. Because I want to go, but I can't go against Hashem. So comes Hashem, says, okay. You can take a person where he wants to go. If that's what you want, I'm not going to stop you. Go with him. But you're going to do what I tell you. Then it gets even more interesting. So Hashem is upset with him. Why do you want to go? That's another discussion. So Balak hears that Bilam's coming. They offer up offerings. They try to curse the Jewish people. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. He has to bless them. Right? Let me go and see if Hashem will allow me to do this. It's all about going. But again, he tries to bless them, curse them, and he ends up blessing. What would you do to me? Go with me to a different place. This happens three times. Three times, Bilam wants to curse the Jewish people. It doesn't work. Three times, Balak says, let's try a different place. So Avram goes back to the same place and Bilam tries to change the place. I'll tell you what I think this is all about. I think there are two issues at play here. Issue number one is the relationship between us and the environment that we're in. Issue number two is what creates change. You know, if you go to a different place, imagine a guy sitting in, uh, I don't know, where are you from, Philadelphia? Guy's sitting in Philadelphia. He says, you know, I can't learn Torah in Philadelphia. Right? It's just hard to learn Torah in Philadelphia. I'll go to Yushalayim. Right? I'll go to Yushalayim. I'll come learn Torah in Yushalayim. You know what the danger of this journey is? That you might start to think that the reason that you succeed in learning Torah is because you came to Yushalayim. And if the reason you came and you're succeeding in learning Torah is because you're in Yushalayim, then as soon as you leave Yushalayim, you're not going to be able to learn Torah only do it in a place. But if you go back to the same place, then it's not about the place changing, it's about you changing. That's the first issue. Bilam doesn't have to change if all he has to do is change the place. But if changing the place doesn't work, it means the issue is not the place. The issue is with me. I have to change. Judaism as a fundamental value introduced to the world the idea that we have to change ourselves in order to change the world. Right? Here's an interesting question. So Avram's on the mountain and Stum's in the valley. And Hashem says Stum has to be destroyed. You know what I think Avram is struggling with? If human beings could become a Stum, then what am I doing? How did I allow these cities to become stone. You know, it's interesting. The world talks about, you know, where was God during the Holocaust? 
they talk about how could the Germans do this? That the people who who inspired Goethe and and, and, and Beethoven and Bach, how, how could such an intellectual people, how could such an enlightened people allow such evil to flourish? Nobody talks about how did the rest of the world allow such evil to flourish? Right? The question is not where was God, the question is where was man? If you could live in a world where hundreds of thousands of people are being murdered in Syria, then we're not doing enough to make the world a better place. Now, I'm not saying that we should drop everything we're doing and run off to Syria, but it should bother us. Avram gets up in the morning and says, I did not succeed in impacting the world to prevent the creation of a scum. That should bother me. So he argues with God. He doesn't want to accept that Stum should be destroyed. It's not because Stum will or won't be destroyed. It's because if you're an Avraham, that has to bother you. You have to struggle with that. The concept of a Makom Kavua, and we'll finish with this, is that a place acquires energy. When you sit and learn Torah in a place, that place becomes a place of Torah. It's affected by the energy of Torah. Right? And you being in that place affects you. But when you're in a place that affects you, you have to remember, you cannot forget that you have to affect it. Because the question is, does Sdom affect Avram, or can Avram affect Sdom? The unfortunate reality of Avram and Sdom was that Avram wasn't impacted by Sdom, but Sdom was not impacted by Avram. Now I'll tell you something interesting. Avram is given a mission by God to, to change the world. He does not succeed. There is one Jew left when Avram dies, and that's Yitzchak. Now don't get me wrong, Avram created Yitzchak. That's pretty impressive, but he didn't change the world. Yitzchak, by the way, Yitzchak is given a mission as well, change the world. He does not succeed either. He creates Yaakov, that's pretty impressive. But when he dies, there's still only one Jew. Yaakov, on the other hand, succeeds. Yaakov has 12 Jews. 13 with Dina, 25 in the members. Yaakov creates the family of the Jewish people, and that leads to the creation of the Jewish people. And it's interesting that Avram is the one who goes out, and he does, and he's chesed, and he's energy. He wants to change the world, you know? Yitzchak is the one who receives, who accepts, gvura, surrender. Avram is the okayed, Yitzchak is the neekad. Avram is chesed, Yitzchak is gvura. Neither one of those energies succeeds in changing the world. Only the synthesis of them, Tiferet, Yaakov, is what changes the world. So on the one hand, we have to want to change them. That's Avram. On the other hand, we have to make sure that Stum doesn't change us. That's Yitzchak. If we find a way to synthesize those two ideas, then Yaakov is born. The makam that I'm in affects me and I have to try to affect it. You come into a base Medrash because you're coming to a place that has the ability to have an impact on you. There is an energy about sitting in a base Medrash. If I was giving you this year, last year, when you were in your high schools, whatever, you might have had a hard time getting this. But now that you're here, and by the way, you have the gift, you're blessed to be the year of Araita, the students that get this on a level that I'm not sure anybody else ever got this. Because you, so early in the year, are, are, are almost being driven to understand the impact of being a base manager. Because Hashem keeps denying you from being a base manager. 
So you realize that sitting here is completely different from sitting over there. Even just the little difference between a dorm in the old city of Yerushalayim and a basement in the old city of Yerushalayim. And the question is, what's the balance? On the one hand, you come here, you sit here. It's easier to learn in a basement. Be impacted by the environment. Make sure that the environment that you choose is an environment that you want to impact you. But at the same time, do you impact the environment? You know? Do you bring something into the base manager and do you take something from the base manager out into the world? You know? One day, you're going to leave here after a couple of years and you're going to get to your college campuses. Right? So, will you become someone affected by, I don't know, Maryland? I mean, Maryland. Really? I don't know. Right? Are you going to be affected by that or are you going to affect it? Are you, are you going to are you going to bring something to that place? So that's a, that's a rule not just for college, that's a rule for life. You know, as we go through this world, what is the impact we leave on this world? What is the impact we allow the world to have on us? I think that's sort of the, 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 the message behind this idea of Makom Kavur. Something to, to think about in Parashat Vayera.